Good morning, culinary creatures. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Hay. Oh, my culinary creature. Today. Yeah, how culinary creatures got to keep it working after 17 years. We've got to keep changing it up. Okay. Anyhow, but we, we didn't have a short one for an all-Italy program, but we're going to start out with one of our favorite parts of Italy, Sardinia. Um, and right there, there she was, Letitia Clark. I'm so envious. And she wrote this great book on Sardinian cooking and traditions and recipes and called Bitter Honey. And it's great. It's a, it's a very unique Italian. Uh, Letitia is actually a Devon girl. However, she has been transplanted um, to Sardinia, an island that, um, well, you have to give a description. I love the descriptions of Sardinia that you, you noted in your preface about where it came from, because it is kind of an anomaly uh, off the coast of Italy, actually between Italy, uh, Sicily, and, um, you know, well, in that general area. So, but Letitia Clark um, is transplanted to uh, Sardinia, and she is in love with the cooking there. She is a, a longtime food writer and chef, and she produced a wonderful book called Bitter Honey, which I love because it, it, I love Sardinia, and this brings back so many memories of being there. It's, it's a real, real, real place, isn't it? Yes, it's very, um, it's very, it's a very eccentric place, I think, and I, I think that's one of the things that really, um, drew me to it and then made me want to stay. It's very, it is very custom from the rest of the world, really, not just Italy, but everywhere. It kind of has its own identity, and Sardinians are very proud of that identity, and, and they're very keen to kind of preserve it, and I think that's one of the really special things. That, and it's that amazing. Sort of so many yeah, so it's, many traditions kind of kept alive, and yeah, it feels like it's a sort of Italian version of Ireland or something, you, you know, Ireland. For us in the UK, Ireland has this sort of strong tradition of music and song and um, its own kind of wild and, and heathen traditions. And Sardinia is very much like that, that they have sort of traditional music, the food is very rustic. Yeah, it reminds me of... It reminds me a little of the Basques in Spain, too. But, of course, there's yeah, some yeah. connection between the Basques in Ireland, yeah. too. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's a lot of Spanish influence and tradition in, in Sardinia as well, so that's a kind of a good comparison. Well, it's it yeah. part of the kingdom of the two Sicilies, right? Yeah, it was Spanish before it was Italian, right? Yeah, it was um, colonized by the Spanish for a long time, and actually the area where I am, now, uh, Oristano, the town where I live, has a lot of Spanish tradition. We had an Aragonese sort of queen in the 14th century who there's a big statue of in the in the big square in town, and, and she drew up the first kind of uh, book of law that was ever used in Oristano. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of Spanish influence still, and the costumes, the traditional local costumes feel very Spanish, and some of the, there's a big tradition of horse racing, and uh, kind of medieval jousting tournaments, like the Palio in um, in Siena, but right. sort of Sardinian version. And well, I think the, that's probably a Spanish. Siena, the, the Italian state, a number of Italian states fought over uh, 
Sardinia. Anyhow, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's another reason why they, they sort of were pushed to maintaining their own identity because they were traded back and forth uh, by yeah, exactly. countries and cultures and, and Italian states. Yeah, I think that's, that's always a kind of one of the products of a place that's been passed around a lot and colonized a lot and invaded a lot is that they become even more determined to, you know, maintain some of their, their identity and, and their own tradition. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting place from that aspect, definitely. Now, there, there's a, an interesting palette, if you like, of, of food yeah. that are native to Sardinia, including botaga, and yeah. there, there must be bit, there must be some honey in there somewhere as well. <laughs> and, and, there's yeah. a, and there's a cheese you better stay away from unless you like a big bad smell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that cheese is is very very um, famous and also actually illegal. Uh, everybody still makes right. it. Right, it is illegal, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's officially illegal, but it has things crawling in it, right? Yeah, so they they just take a, a normal pecorino and they slice the the top off and then they allow a fly to come and lay eggs inside and then the eggs obviously hatch into maggots and then the maggots eat the cheese and digest, you know, pass, pass it and then once they've passed it so they've made a sort of disgusting churning of the cheese <laughs> then, you, <laughs> then you eat it at that point and Sardinians think it's extremely good for you and... They maintain it's one of the reasons they have such long lives, and they, you know, they, they love it. And well, they it is, it's definitely an experience. I don't personally like it. I, I, never, I, I would not go near it. I mean, I'm mean, <laughs> pretty open, yeah, but, but that, I won't do that. Now they also they also have a very unusual bread. The him sheets or something like that. Music, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, uh, um, it's sometimes called carta de musica, which That's means it. music That's paper, or um, or they call it here. They mostly call it pane carazao, which is a yeah. It was it, it was designed originally for shepherds to carry because it keeps for ages and ages and ages. It's not really like a bread in that way. It's more like a, a kind of cracker. Uh-huh. Um, and it is. It's, it's, very it's amazing. Crisp. I, sorry, I said it's very thin and crisp. Yeah, it's very thin and crisp, and um, it's a great vehicle for, you know, everything, sliced meats and batarga and vegetables, absolutely anything goes goes with it and on it. And it also works kind of like pasta, like dried pasta. They make dishes where they soak it in broth and then layer it up, it's like a, using it oh, like a yeah. lasagna sheet or something. Yeah, t- so t- one t- of the recipes in the book is based on that idea as well. Now tell us about batarga. Yeah, you know, I, I have no idea why I'm not crazy about Botarga, because everybody who likes uh, Italian food likes it, and I like all of those stuff, Italian food. And I mean, you know, I was raised on Sicilian food. I still do not like Botarga, and I don't know why. Really? Yeah. Have you sh- you, you're definitely trying the mullet one, not the tuna one, because I don't like the tuna one very Oh, much much the mullet one is the one that I thought I was trying. What's the other one? Tuna. The tuna one is more common in Sicily, and that's very, oh, very, that could very, be. very, very, very uh, What about in Spain? Because I had a lot of botarga in Spain. Uh, I don't know. What, yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally love it because 
I love anything fishy and, and salty and slightly bitter. Um, so it's kind of my perfect food, but I do understand why it's not it's not for everybody, but I think that makes it kind of more special that only, you know, you've got to sort of select few people that, that really like it and then you know you're in. All the more you know, you're in the Bataga Club. It's all, all the more for you, and you you don't care if anybody else likes it, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's all those things that I love at night, so I don't know. I may be mis- mixing it up in my head with the tuna. Shall, shall, shall we tell Letitia about Grand Prix? Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, you have the same kind of culture and. and had in England um, as we've had in America. I mean, we're not Americans and British are not into eating horses. Oh, yeah, no, we like to have them as pets. Yeah. Well, we we, we were in a restaurant in Oliena, in the little town of Oliena, which is is famous for its wine, I guess. And we're in the the restaurant and we're trying to decide what to eat. And we saw this item on the menu called Grand Prix. So we, thought, well, we, we, we must try that. So it, oh it turned out it indeed was horse meat, and and we 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 didn't get up too well the next morning. Oh! But did you feel bad? Did you feel bad morally, or did you feel bad? Well, it was, wasn't anything to do with morality. I think the the problem was we, the problem was we had drunk quite a lot of wine as well. Well, no, we've, we've had, no, we've had, um, uh, uh, horse meat in, uh, Abruzzo and in southern Italy and in, you know, yeah. and, uh, that was prepared well. This just wasn't prepared very well. And, and it, you know, it also seemed like it must have been a slow horse, not a fast one. <laughs> oh, God. Been hanging around quite a long time. Wow. <laughs> An old, old nag, as we say in England, yeah. Well, ima- ima- imagine, oh imagine this. We got up the next morning in Ollie and we got in our car, and we drove, and our destination was Cagliari. Oh, and the roads and stuff, here. Yeah. It's not exactly the best. We, we, we must have gotten at least 10 kilometers, and we decided, I, I pulled the car over to the side of the road, and I said, sweetheart, let's smoke a cigarette, and then we'll think about whether or not we turn back or whether we go on. <laughs> and what did you do? Did you go on? We, we went, went on. We, we went, went on, on. You, but you know the road, and it's a it's a slimy, tiny little road. <laughs> With no guardrails. I, yeah. I, I pictured us down the bottom of a valley, but turned out turn, <laughs> we made it through just fine. Yeah, now, have we been in, in the area where um, she is now? No, no, no. The, the well, how clo- did we miss that? The, clo- the closest we got was the far southwest corner. Southwest yeah. We went to Nora. There's a place called Nora. Yeah. Which was Nora. amused us a lot because cause that, cause that's my mother's name and it's Anne's mother's name as well. So we didn't forget that one. There are, yeah. some, there are, some, there are some ruins there. Ah, okay. No, I've never heard of it. And then but it's like, worth a visit. If we kept if we kept on going around in a clockwise direction, we would finish up in Aristano, and then we keep on going. Yeah, I think Aristano. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily recommend Aristano as yeah. a town to make a real effort to stop in because it's just sort of. It's just a small town, not a huge amount to recommend it. I mean, it's quite pretty, but. The beaches nearby are, are actually quite famous. 
not so famous that they get really crowded like the north and south coast, but mm-hmm. well, we it have... has got a lovely stretch of coast. And well, um, what keeps you in Sardinia? Well, I think I want to. I'm sort of working towards building a, an agriturismo here. I really want to have a place where I host people, you know, just on a small scale, three or four bedrooms. Um, and I cook everything, I prepare everything that I grow and make and, you know, use some local producers, some local salamis and cheeses if I don't make them myself. Um, and just sort of build a lovely little farm where I can host people because I, I remember when I was 18, I read a book, not a book in here, but The uh, the wine. Uh, what is the common wine there? What is it? Sorry, there's the a, most common. There's a white wine called Vermentino. And, and yeah, there's a very good white what, called Vermentino, which is mostly comes from Galora, the north, which is very good. I like that a lot. I don't really drink red, uh, white wine as a rule, but I like the Vermentinos a lot. And then there's a, um, and then there's um, a red there's a red wine which is made of grapes that the rest of the world calls Grenache. But there's a different name for yeah. it in Sardinia. They call it Cananau. Cananau. Yeah. Cananau, Cananau, which is very strong. Yeah, Cananau di is is the most famous one, I think, right? Yeah, it is, yeah. And it's I think it's delicious. I could drink it all day and all night. I love it. Um, <laughs> and it's very, <laughs> it's very strong, but simple, full-bodied and delicious. I love Cananau. Well, you know, the thing... I would say just for the wine. The thing about... Um, your book is it's very straightforward um, just like the cuisine the, the Sardinian do you speak Sarda by the way? I guess you do <laughs> I speak a few words and I understand most of it because Luca's nonna only spoke Sardinian she didn't really speak any Italian so uh-huh. to have conversations with her I had to speak a little bit of Sardinian so I understand it and I teach um, I teach English in a school here as well. And oh, I, okay. I have, I have a few students who speak a lot of Sardinian, so I pick up words from them. <laughs> but it's a, like, it's a fascinating language. I love learning the words. They're so funny sounding, some of them, which is great. They're very, it's a very kind of throaty sound. All of the words have great sounds. So, yeah, I like learning bits of it. Well, you know what, what I like about Sardinian food, and actually you do too, is that it is an honest, straightforward cuisine and very dependent on quality yeah. ingredients. And and yeah. also, I mean, you're talking about your agroturismo. I mean, you'd be growing most of what you were going to be use, using in cooking, and, and that is something that happens there quite a lot too. Now, do, yeah. they, still no, those, think... do they still have those camps where... I think it was mainly the men would go out and in, in, into the countryside and um, and get uh, herds going and things like that. Do they still have those? 
Yeah, no, I mean, they're big into the sort of wild food and, and hunting and gathering, and you know, all the men here will just build fire at the drop of a hat and start roasting a pig over it, you know, as if it was the most natural and easy thing in the world, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Definitely not something most English men <laughs> could do. Um, so I, I think that's really, they just have a real kind of propensity for eating outside and eating in a very, I remember going to end of Luca's house, they had a sort of a little a little cottage in the, in the mountains and there was nothing there, they just used it for basically to have big meals <laughs> and they just, <laughs> they just went and they set out, you know, a few foldable tables under the olives outside, you know, that classic kind of image of that Italian lunch outside and before you knew it, you know, there were just plates and plates of antipathy, everybody bought something and then there was a pig roasting in the background and there was liters of wine and just, they make such a, they, they, make, they really make it into an art, the eating here, and it, but it's all very simple and very straightforward and be made at home or, you know, made, given by a friend or grown yourself or something like that. You've, I think it's really nice knowing the provenance of your ingredients and that's really, you know, having worked in restaurants for so long and you know, spent many years shopping in terrible, terrible supermarkets when oh, I lived yeah. in London or whatever, you know, like it's, it's really important to me to know exactly where things come from and, and that almost becomes more important than the cooking, you know, having the, the good ingredient is more important than the cooking of it almost and, you know, people say Italian food is more about good shopping than it is about cooking yeah, really I because think so. the yeah. ingredients... Yeah, so. Now you have a lot of, I mean, you, you, you deal with the culture, uh, the, um, the, the general gestalt of, of the <coughs> Sardinian cooking, but you also have some really attractive recipes, um, that, that people would want from this book. And one of, I mean, some of them I've never heard of, like, I've never in my life had a preserved artichoke. No. Is it like, preserved lemon do you do a lot of salt no no it's kind of more like a, you know like if you went to an Italian deli and you would see those artichokes in oil oh okay like, okay it's, it's kind of like that so you cook them they have a way of doing it with all of all vegetables really they do I've seen them do it with broad beans with peppers with anything you just um you cook them in a mixture of white wine and vinegar with salt and bay leaves maybe some garlic and then when they're cooked and drained, you preserve them under olive oil, so you can just eat vegetables all year round. Essentially, it's just a, it's an antipasti, but it's really delicious. Um, and the flavorings, obviously, from the wine and the, and the garlic and the oil, it's just a very nice way of eating vegetables and of, you know, meaning that you can eat them all year, so you don't just eat artichokes for one month a year. You can eat them 12 months a year or whatever. Now, you, you mentioned about... Um Sardinia being uh, having the reputation for uh, or Sardinians for having the reputation of longevity, and it is a blue zone, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think it's the second sort of after the most Japan. centenarians after a little town in Japan. Yeah, right. And, oh, yeah, and, yeah. and my, I tell the same story over and over again, but um, somebody reported on Blue Zones. I was interviewing one of these super centenarians or whatever they're called and asked him what, what his um, 
What was the secret? What was the secret to his longevity? And he said, beans. Beans. <laughs> <laughs> now, do, do they do well, I eat a lot of beans, so I hope that's a good thing. Well, you're going to live to be a centenarian then. Super centenarian. So, so you're going to have time to wow. write. You're going to have time to write another book. So what? What's the subject of the next <laughs> one? <laughs> well, these. Yeah. But as I started to tell people that they should get this, not just for understanding a different culture altogether, but um, also for uh, the recipes that are. Um, that yeah, I think. I think what I really, what I really, what well, the hardest thing to do, but what I really hope I did do at the end was not give. I mean, I could have just written something that would have ended up being almost like a history book, which would have just been very classic, very just opinion. make because you know some of the recipes, like it's so. It's so kind of old, old-fashioned and simple, you know, boiled mutton with, you know, one fennel. But, you know, I wanted it, I wanted it to be so that people would actually make their own. And you know, get out and their own table, you know, do anything that's completely unrealistic. So I, thought, I, was, I was trying very hard to stay faithful to the true queens and it's this also now, now listen, listeners, listeners, here's here's a hint for you. Cellular, cellular telephone reception is not very good. In Lawrence, <laughs> in, in, in We're losing Lawrence, you, Latina. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so We're losing you. Your cell phone you know, is fading. You're break. You're breaking up. So it's it's been. Oh no. It's been such a pleasure to have the chance to talk to you and uh, yeah, and uh, listeners. I mean, this is you. Everybody thinks they know all there is to know about Italian food, but this this is a whole different take of it. Uh, it's called Bitter Honey: Recipes and Stories from the Island of Sardinia, and the author is Letitia Clark, who's going to be opening her own agriturismo at some point. We're all have to go. You'll let us know about that, won't you, Letitia? Of course, I would love to be able to Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. We're going to take a little short jump across onto the mainland of Italy and steer a little north to um, and the place where, and the place where everybody goes. So, Tuscany. Sometimes I feel that the most likely person you're going to meet in Tuscany is your next door neighbor. That's true. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, we're going to talk to George and Linda Myers, who have a cooking uh, school there, and uh, they can tell us about their classes and also about. They, they had a front row seat to the, the shutdown of Italy for the coronavirus. So let's talk to George and Linda Myers. We're talking to George and Linda Myers um, from their gorgeous location in southern Tuscany, sort of under the Tuscan sun kind of uh, location, right? Absolutely. It's beautiful here. Tell us what... You have a boutique hotel and vineyards. Tell us how you got there 
and what you do there? Well, we have, we're like life changers. We was an Air Force pilot and a businessman, and I was a teacher, and we just decided to change our lives, and we came over to Tuscany, a place that we love. And, you know, we fast forward quite a few years, and now we own a cooking school here. We own a beautiful hotel with a thousand olive trees, vineyards. We have a gorgeous restaurant, and we just are living a second fabulous life. <laughs> now, who does – do you have a chef on your restaurant, or are you have a cooking school? Do you do cooking? We do do cooking. Cooking Tuscany really – um, run separately, but we house our guests here at Lucusa. And the cooking company, really, they cook with the local nonas and the local women here in the village. Yes, and um, this is George, and um, I actually excel at eating what the chef cooks, so I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> yeah, well, we know about that because we eat for a living. <laughs> well, right. you, don't, you don't do any drinking as well, do you, George? Well, I'm also, Lindy does, um, I will tell you, I'm in charge of the wines here, and so I do drink a little bit of wine, I'll tell you why. In fact, tonight I've been drinking a nice little red from Montepulciano, I will say. Well, that's not bad. Vino Vino Nobile or something something like that? I'm actually drinking a Vino Nobile de Montepulciano, that's correct. There you go, okay. We're about about to launch on on a new Chianti we just got from Frescobaldi. Are we doing that tonight? Oh, okay. Yeah, we we had, um, we love the Frescobaldi's. We had, uh, well, which, who did we have lunch with? Which Frescobaldi? I forget now. Uh, We had lunch with. It was at the Big Castle. At the Big Castle, we had lunch with her. Awesome. Too much wine, right? We were drinking too much. There's no such thing as too much wine. Yeah. Um, tell, now tell us, um, like, how have you been there for this the whole um, um, lockdown and and for the pandemic? You were there, yeah. huh? Um, yeah. I actually have been here in Tuscany um, since about mid February, and George came about mid March. So I've been here through the whole lockdown, and he's been here through most of it. Um, you know. It's really quite different. It's been very different in our area, and we can only really talk about our experience. But we were never locked in our homes, and, you know, we were free to go to the grocery store. There was never any kind of uh, shortage of food or toilet paper or paper towels. So, you know, people were happy and people were walking. And as time is going on, you know, everyone here has been very um, happy and uplifted. Today we are really out of any kind of restriction, everything is open. George and I went over to a little mall and we ate and restaurants are open. So really it has not been that bad in this area. Up north where the majority oh, of Oh, yeah, around Milan, though, I know. But we also yeah, heard... Talk about that one. We heard from a friend of ours who has a, um, a bar in Rome, and he mm-hmm. said it was... First of all, that it came very fast, and no matter how bad you think it, it's going to be, it's worse. He said it was awful. 
But we haven't had, I can't say anything's been awful or really even bad because we've been very busy here. You know, people here in our village have been very uplifting. People were still walking and out. Yeah. Um, I saw the bands on the, on the balconies that they were having the little music shows and stuff on the balconies. Right, absolutely. I can't say that it's been awful by any means. Uh, I think as business owners, it's probably been a little tough because, you know, we're used to being here and aren't any tourists. Mm-hmm. Now, did, um, what about your business? I mean, I guess you were shut down. Well, we, we did shut down only because we were already kind of closed, um, you know, for the winter season. And then as the shutdown came, we have kind of had to push things back, you know, for opening as far as restaurants go. Yeah. Um, I mean, how big is your cooking school? So our cooking school, our cooking school usually is about 16 people per week. And How many? All over the uh, 16 people per class, and they stay from Sunday through Saturday, and they enjoy the uh, the entire week with us. And those people come from um, all over the world, you know. But I'd say mainly Australia, Canada, and America, and they are, are here at the hotel staying with us. But we also at our hotel have international guests from all over too. Um, I guess if there was a good thing about this is that we weren't scheduled to open until right before Easter, so we were shut down when the official shutdown came. Right now, it's more now it's more of a question of when do we open again, right? So the restrictions are, are lifting, and it's just more of a, just us seeing you know how we're going to abide by the restrictions and the regulations. The you know because safety and uh, of everyone and everyone's health is paramount for us. That's number one. Uh-huh. Wow. Yes. Um, now, uh, the, your publicist um, said that that you one of your special classes is, um, especially now when people are seeking um, solace and, and um, comfort, is pasta. So that you have a whole bunch of um, of quarantine pasta recipes, huh? Well, you know. Uh- it is Italy, and we have no pasta and no wine. So, you know, so be, uh, be, uh, of course, you know, I'm joking. That's, uh, we have no yeah, problem eating or drinking here because we have tons of pasta and have a solar full of wine. But we do roll pasta with our with our guests. We roll pasta every day. In fact, um, and the one day we're not rolling pasta, our hands are still in dough because we're making bread and focaccia. But, yeah, so we have tons of pasta here, and, um, yeah, we're, in fact, we've been rolling uh, pisci, which is our local uh, yes. our local pasta, and we've been rolling a lot of that lately. Now, what did you do when you, in your former life? So I was a pilot in the Air Force, um, okay. a retired colonel, and Linda was a teacher. So we've uh, definitely um, went well beyond in, um, you know, what we ever thought our experiences would take us. Well, what led you to choose that particular location in Italy? Well, you know, um, as a pilot, I used to come to Tuscany. As I tell people, I came to Tuscany when Tuscany wasn't cool. 
You know, before it was Tuscany. I used to, we used to just fly with the Italian Air Force and be over here all the time. And um, I came enough to where I knew people. And and um, we just happened upon this village one day, and you know, we kind of fell in love with it, and here we are. So it's uh, one of those unique finds that you just you just find it, and it's not um, unusual for Linda and I because when we go on vacation, even now, we don't plan too much we just rent a car and we kind of go we don't really have reservations we'll just stop wherever we stop you know so and we go wherever we go so it's a you know you find a lot of different things that way yeah it's it's good um where you're from the south in the u.s huh well we are from new orleans and uh oh you're uh, from my favorite one of my favorite cities well, you know, and that's what we always tell people is that, you know, Lynn and I are from New Orleans, so, of course, our life revolves around food. And I always mm-hmm. tell people, when you go on vacation, you go to the Grand Canyon, but do you talk about the Grand Canyon? No. You talk about the <laughs> restaurant where you were eating next to the Grand Canyon. That great meal we had. You know, remember that? You go, well, wasn't that near some place? Yeah, I think it was near the Grand Canyon, but get back to the food. It was fantastic. And that's kind of where Linda and I have come from, and that's that's kind of the way we live our life. You know, it's all, in, and I'm sure you guys do the same. You know, it really revolves around food. Yeah. We just um, interviewed a, a food, a cookbook author, and, and uh, well, uh, he was with, um, we interviewed him for one book, and then he wrote this other book. And But we, what we interviewed him about was, um, what crew was, was he with? Red, the Red Beans crew. Red Beans, yeah, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, they he told us about this um, industry relief program that they're doing, and it's it's a lot of cities are doing that, but New Orleans is not only extending it to um, industry workers in the restaurants and. And hospitality, but also to the musicians. So they're really, um, it's beautiful, yeah. Well, you so. know, I can tell you that New Orleans is a lot like Italy. Um, we eat and drink uh, not because we want to, but because it's just part of our culture. Oh, yeah. And music oh, yeah, is no, right We've, there we've spent that. a lot of time in both places, so I understand what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, one, of our, one, of, one, of, one of our favorite places on a, one of our early trips to Tuscany was in Cortona called Osteria Teatro. Oh, you know it? Yeah, we do yeah. a cooking school. We, one of our cooking classes, we actually cook underneath the streets of Cortona. So we're very familiar uh-huh. with Cortona, and I love Cortona. Yeah, well, I can't remember if you, if you know... You can go on our webpage, and it's on the menu radio dot com. And if you uh, do find on this page, and you type in the teatro, the, the um, Osteria Teatro, you, you can you'll see the interview we did with the owner and chef from that restaurant, and years ago. Oh, you can listen to it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we had we had. Um, a fabulous, um, uh, what, what's the steak? Steak. Oh, the Florentine. 
Yeah, the say Florentine. We're getting all these yeah. kind of signals here. Um, yeah, and and um, and it was. We said, you know, it's too much. We'll never be able to eat that. And we just kept eating it and eating it and eating it until it was all gone. <laughs> Huge hunk of meat. I mean, we don't usually eat that much meat. So <laughs> that's what happens when you come to Tuscany. The food is so delicious and. You don't have to rush through your meals. You know, it can go on for two or three hours. So, you know, it's just such a wonderful experience to sit around the table and talk to your guests. And we enjoy it so much because people don't, you know, especially in the States or, you know, in other parts of the country, they don't slow down and take time to enjoy their meal. They just rush through it. And here in Tuscany, we take our time and enjoy each course very slowly, and just really remember the meal experience. Right. Well, listen, I hope that you guys are enjoying yourself, and I hope that you, when you open up you'll have um, a lot of visitors. Um, I don't know. You probably don't know how many to expect, huh? <laughs> no, not right now. We don't know nope. what's going on. Well, we, you know, we're expecting that. Actually, we have quite a few people who have already booked. People are very excited that Italy is now open, and, you know, we'll be experiencing, we're preparing the opening now. We have a beautiful pool here in the hotel, so we're really ready to go. We're just waiting for the last word from the officials, and the doors will open. Great. And we also about have giving, special people, uh, well, we also have about, special people that we have on the, uh, on the interview with us that we hope to see here shortly, too. Oh, yes. Let's have your, uh, our listeners know your email or your website address. And our website address is www.cookintuscany. So it's C-O-O-K-I-N-Tuscany.com. Cook in Tuscany. Tuscany. Listen, get, get over there before they sell out, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, great, guys. I'm glad that we'll you got through the rough spot. We'll always have wine for you, and we make our own olive oil, so we're not going to run out. Oh, that sounds good, too. <laughs> All right, you two. Uh, again, George and Linda Myers, um, La Chiesa, um Hotel, and cooking school, cooking classes, um, winery, uh, the whole shebang. Thank you for talking to us. Oh, thank you. You have a wonderful day. Yes, stay well. Bye-bye. We can't wait to see you in Italy again. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. For our final segment, uh, we're going to be having uh, who's someone who's becoming a regular, Mark Stevens, on our program. Um, he's going to pour, pull back the lens um, from just Italy and focus on a, a global perspective on flavor. And his book, the latest book, is called World Sauces. And with a little effort, you can really have an exciting routine of rotation of meals. Here we go, Mark. Well, Mark Stevens, you sure like a challenge. <laughs> We've interviewed you before, um, but this current book called The World Sauces Cookbook is 
it's it's beyond let's say it's beyond um ambitious um it's the world itself <laughs> and then sauces um you said in, in your introduction that your goal was to touch base on seven different continents in a year did you do that Hi, Anne. Thank you for having me on. Yes, I did. I, I barely accomplished it on um, December 26th of that year. I, I well, made seven. Let's, for, for, our, for our listeners who are not geographically as savvy as you and I are, why don't, why don't you name all seven? I started out in North America, where I live, in New Orleans, Louisiana, and then um, quickly I made South America, so I was in Bolivia, Brazil, Argentina, and um, then I did a charter, basically, to uh, Antarctica. And <laughs> so that was March. And then during the summer, I visited my grandmother in Italy and piled around Europe and made it to Tunisia and Morocco. So that was Europe and Africa. And then later in the year, I went to Australia and then I went to Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Japan, and so that was Asia. So that that's the seven. <laughs> so how do you... Uh, Which did you like best? <laughs> I really enjoyed Antarctica. I'm, that was a lifelong dream, and it was well worth it. Yeah, you know, um, what's the... Um, Weekly Observer, is it the Observer that Alan Jenkins works for? He Rabbit. works for the Observer Food Monthly. Yeah, the Observer Food Monthly. He wrote a book called um, was it Dawn or Sunrise, and he went to Antarctica just to experience the, um, the, the, the eternal night or whatever they call that. Well, Mark was there. You, yeah. You were there in the fall, you were there in their fall right? Because you were there in March. Cor- it would have been uh, – I was there in, in March, so it would have been, you know, the end of their um, summer, basically, right, yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I would say that seeing – we also went to South Georgia Island, which is in the Atlant, at Antarctic water um, right. sort of channel between, yeah, uh, uh, Argentina and Antarctica, and seeing, seeing uh, 300,000 – King penguins on one oh, wow. beach. Three hundred thousand. Yeah, just penguins as far as the eye can see, without any room between them. It's probably the thing, the one thing I would pick to remember on my deathbed from all my travels. It was yeah, no. incredible. Did you did you ever see the the uh, documentary that where Morgan Morgan Freeman was the was the narrator? Of course, and it was all about yep, the absolutely. emperor penguins, and the emperor yep. penguins are even bigger. Yep. That was a classic. Um, so I would say that was probably my favorite um, favorite one. However, the food, obviously, was just the food we ate on the boat. So food-wise, I'd have to say probably either Tunisia or Morocco was, was numero uno. Yeah, you, you say that in that section of your book. That the, the one segment you'd like everybody to, to, to spend a lot of time on is, is that section. Now, which brings us to a question of how you organized this book. 
I'm, it's overwhelming with so much information. It really is incredible how you got it all together. But you do part one and part two, okay? And part one is exploring the world of sauces. Part two is using the sauces for everyday recipes. You also have um, all kinds of, of help, such as um, a heat index, um, what the type of sauce it is, um, as in marinade, condiment, uh, cook in, pour over, glaze, base. Um, you have the prep time, the cook time, the, your flavor notes. Then you have a section on what mains the sauce goes with and what sides it goes with it. I mean, that's a whole bunch of information. <laughs> Yeah, right. it really is very user-friendly. One of the things that we spoke about, my publisher and I, early was that many sauce books just give you the sauces, and then you're uh-huh. sort of left to your own devices to cook everything else, which is, uh, for certain sauces, just fine. Um, but we wanted... You know, interestingly, Anne, it turned out to be a really good quarantine book because you have everything you need to make the entire meal. Um, we really wanted, since the sauces, many of them would be unfamiliar to the user. It's not just the French sauces and their descendants that are the sort of backbone to most sauces books that we give you plenty of different things to use it with because sometimes my friend Martha Foose uh, who's a cookbook author. Yeah, I know more. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes you just have some freaking chicken in the refrigerator and you don't know what to do with it. And so for scenarios like that where you're going to pick something up um, on the way home, you're going to want a variety of things to do with it. And that was a bit of the intention going in, and that's why Part 2 covers some of those really just basic recipes for some standards that you might have. But also... I think that people hesitate to make sauces because you generally make sauces and you have a bunch left over. And if you just know how to make it with the one thing, you might be disinclined to making it. But if you can use it with multiple things, you could make a sauce on like a Sunday or whenever you have free time and then use it throughout the week for a couple of different things. I do that all the time. I still use this book for that very purpose, just make a, a big batch of something and then add it to whatever else I'm cooking. Well, you know, that's, I was going to start out the interview with saying, you know, there are so many books out there, Mark, about, I mean, some classics about the sauces uh, and whatever made you want to, to do another book on, on sauces, um, but yours is very different. I mean, a lot Thank of them, yeah. yeah, a lot of them concentrate on the classical sauces, the French, uh, particularly. But um, you you dip into, as we said, all these other areas of dips and condiments and um, you know, sambles <laughs> and you know, so forth and so on. And and so that was, yeah. Go ahead. Excuse me. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Go ahead. You, I, so you. I was very adamant about not doing something that had been done so well so many times. Exactly. The, the French sauces and sort of the sauces that we sort of know um, and think about when we sort of 
start mother to, sauces. No, yeah, no pun intended. When we start to marinate about um, the different sauces we could make, sort of the same ones always come to mind: those mothers, and then they're those mothers. <laughs> yes. And you know, wasn't it Jim Peterson who did that? He did do all the classic sauces. Yeah, that's one of his, um, his masterpiece production. And yeah. I, I don't feel like I had anything of substance to offer that conversation. Like got another it, book it. about sauces from somebody who's not a saucier is, is not what the world needs. Exactly. Um, but but uh, there, is, there was an opportunity and an unexplored avenue of, of all these really unique, wonderful, extraordinarily tasty world sauces that people are making in their kitchens, that grandmothers and grandfathers are making. Yeah, now did you get invited family. into people's kitchens? I mean, you indicate occasionally that you are. You have a little story, um, a head notes about little stories about um, who gave you the recipe, and sometimes you're in somebody's kitchen. Did you get a lot of that? Absolutely. It, it's my superpower. I, I don't know why, but people just feel comfortable inviting me into their homes. So when I, when I travel, it, it's it's something that I look forward to, but I, I just end, generally end up in, in people's kitchens. And that's also sort of what I'm interested in, I think, too, less about going to maybe the, the, the tourist sites. I think you – and I mentioned in this book, as cultural indicators – Works of art, I think, are equal to the kind of cheese grater somebody has, the kind of refrigerator, you know, where, where the refrigerator is in the house. You know, my, my grandmother and mother are Italian, and so I grew up in really small kitchens. And so everything in small kitchens is different than sort of, you know, now I, I live in New Orleans. I have a very big kitchen. It's, it's wonderful. Well, but I wonder. I've had always had different. small Two small kitchens I've always had, and I wonder if this because I'm Italian. <laughs> yeah, no. Here we go again. Oh. She's, she's she's whining again about the fact that I never bought her a decent kitchen. <laughs> there you I, never had. I, I, I would say even now I, I just said it was big, but it's, it's it's still modest compared to some of the ones you see. But I think the point that I'm I'm sort of isolating is that people's homes and the way they live is much more for me, an idea of, of travel and what travel is about rather than standing in the line to see you know, something that's been there a thousand years. I, I obviously yeah. see that too and I enjoy it. But um, but the food that's being made by folks that might not be in the restaurant you go to or in the on the TV show about that place, the travel show, that's really what we were after there's some sauces that you have heard of before in the book, like chimichurri and romesco, and certainly yeah. those are popularized. But there's some other ones in there that were family recipes that had been passed down, sometimes never shared before, and some really unique ones that I think really opens up both people's palates and worlds and then makes them interested in the world and makes them interested in trying new things and possibly traveling. So that's the... Yeah, well, I, had, I was talking to a, a, a chef earlier today about the book, and now I'm going to have to lend it to him because he was so interested. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably never see it again. <laughs> but you I'll also, send you, you another. Yeah, you also give me a um, give an education in cultural interaction and and a lot of uh, 
history and I mean just for an example here and like and how all these things are related one sauce on one end of the world to a sauce on the other end of the world but for an example uh, now for years this would be what 70s whatever um i used to make this i think it came out of um either the new york times or um or um I don't know, Gourmet Magazine or something, but it was called Cachiena Curacao, okay? And this was before there was a lot of uh, ingredients, rare ingredients readily available. And I made this thing, and in fact, I can't even imagine how we all didn't die eating it, because you start by lining the casserole with slices of Edam cheese, (laughs) and it goes from there, and there's beef in it and everything. But it called for the addition of, of, of an ingredient called sambal olek. Okay, so I open your book, and here you have sambal olek. Now, I never put it in because I didn't know what it was until later, much later, and I put that, I added that, and I've been making it incorrectly for all those years and loving it, mind you, but this blew the top of my head off <laughs> when I put it in. <laughs> and you see, I just read now in your book that it's a, a chili sauce and you rate it at, at the highest of your little chili peppers <laughs> and, and, and heat. And yeah. that one dish, that one dish, here you have it as a dish spelled with a U instead of an O from Indonesia. The recipe I got was, of course, um, from Curaçao, uh, which happened to be a Dutch colony. In the West Indies. In, in West Indies. And uh, it, it, it overlaps in just about everything between those two countries and into the uh, Indies. I mean, amazing. So you have a whole history there. Now, Mark, we, 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 we get lots of very, very intriguing cookbooks. Not that yours isn't intriguing, some really intriguing ones, like the chef from Senegal. You remember that guy, sweetheart? I don't remember that one. And it it leads me to ask the question, which were some of the ones which, if you like, were the most interesting or outlandish or however you would describe them as ones you would recommend people turn to page 23 or turn to page... 75, because there's a recipe there you really like. Sure. Well, the first one that comes to mind is on, I think it's page 56, but my friend Lola's family's mole. She's Mexican. She's from Mexico City. And I know that's probably um, a bit uh, uh, sacrilege to, to some Oaxacans but, um, or Pueblans. But it is a it is a mole poblano, so they could take consolation there. But it's just a really easy, good way to start your sort of mole journey. People, I think, sometimes can be intimidated by the cooking time or the oh, I mean, by the time you assemble all the ingredients, the, the kind that I used to make would take forever. Um, but but all that being said is it's it's foolproof. It's so easy to make and it's really good and it just blows people's minds um, when you have them over. So that's a, that's one I love because it's something that 
people are familiar with enough that they're not going to be intimidated or feel overwhelmed by maybe some of the other sauces with some of the more obscure ingredients. And there's plenty of sauces of all levels, of course, in the book. Um, another one in that same section is wasakaka, which is guacamole with vinegar instead of lime juice. It's a Venezuelan dish, and I find it to be such a wonderful way to sort of get that that um, that feeling of in your in your neck and your 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 back of your mouth that just craves more and sort of has that thirst to put into your mole, I mean, to put into your, um, your avocado, avocado salsa. And so that's one, it's really easy. There's no cooking involved. Um, you know, one of, you mentioned it earlier, one of the biggest challenges of this book was, was figuring out what a sauce is, not to be like the, yeah, I was going to ask that man speech that Webster's dictionary defines sauce as, but there's so many ways that a sauce can be conveyed whether it's a condiment or um, something a cook-in sauce or a dipping sauce or a glaze a marinade like there's all these different ways and 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 many of them are are more than one like check all boxes that apply in terms Uh of it can be a condiment but also a dipping sauce or also something you marinate in so just going through each one and trying to provide a plethora and a good selection of things that, you know, one of my favorite sauces in here um, is uh, this gochujang sauce that was whipped up by a friend of mine, Chef Song, who cooks for some of the most high-profile NBA players. And it is it is literally just frying up Page the Page 20, the gochujang siang sauce. That's correct, and that's his name um, in the in the parentheses there. Yeah. And then... Uh, but it's yeah, I mean, I, we have that. Believe it or not, we have gochujang in our refrigerator. I never knew what to do with it. Yeah, so we have two. We have two, two jars of it. <laughs> two jars. It comes in those really funny little red tubs or jars sometimes. And the his, the history of this sauce is that they used to they used to ferment the chili peppers in these large clay pots. Now it's made industrially, but um, the sauce. You just have it, and it lasts for a really long time. Add I resisted there a long time. <laughs> some soy sauce. Put in some rice vinegar, some of that, some of that ginger, and the garlic, uh-huh. and you you have this thing. It'll last. It'll last as long as you need it to. As I promise, as long as you need it. <laughs> it's like our carrot right. pickle. <laughs> I, yeah, that's, I, that's, a, that's another I story. For everything, I I if I have some chicken, I will marinate it. I'll put some in a plastic bag or a bowl. You know, smother the chicken in it, leave it in there for a couple hours to a day, grill the chicken, fantastic, sweet, spicy heat. And then, you know, if I have a, if I even have a steak, I'll put it on a steak. I've put it in a salad before. It's this thing that you can just whip up in 15 minutes and it'll last you two weeks and you can just use it for all these different things. And so many of the sauces have that versatility. Um, Isn't it sweet? Sounds like carrot pickle. They have a carrot pickle here? No, I said it sounds like chicken. Oh, it's all like our carrot pickle. And finally, we got rid of it. I think it was 15 years old. Here's a funny story for you, Mark. We we interviewed an Indian chef who, I think he was the one who wrote the book with six, 600 curry recipes. 
Oh, yeah, right. And he, he said, wow. it's very simple. He said, the word curry means gravy. <laughs> That's yeah. all you need to know. It's gravy. That's it. Yeah. Of course, then you have your, um, your um, ragu nona, your grandmother's uh, ragu. Oh, um, yeah. That's the yeah. secret weapon. <laughs> I had to ask yeah. permission for that one. That was not a... I, I had the recipe. I'd made it for years, but just to, to put it out in the world, I had, to, I had to sort of kiss the ring of my grandmother, okay. my nona, and... <laughs> <laughs> in the good yeah, I in have I had one of those known as too, so I understand. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, hey, did, you, did you did you see Alan Shire on on the, the Today Show third hour this morning? No, I didn't. I did not because I am I am in a different time zone, so it's very uh-huh. early for me. But um, okay. it, you know, Alan, I right? do love I, I do love Alan. We're in the same Mardi Gras crew. Um, oh, Are you really? Restaurant. Yeah, and the crew of red beans and rice, and which you guys well, know about. Oh, that's right. He's in that. Yeah. And, and that's that's the one that the Camellia Bean people run, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's sponsored by Camellias. Yeah. And um, but Elon's amazing. His, his restaurant Saba is obviously off the charts, and he's been doing great work with Feed the Front Line and Feed the Second Line. So we're all really proud of him. How's he doing? In, didn't he open somewhere in Colorado or something? He's in Denver. Too? Yeah. He's- Denver. He did. He did. I don't know much about that restaurant, though. So you guys will have to have him on and and uh, and discuss that. But um, I have been to Saba in New Orleans, and that's a really amazing place. Yeah. Well, we went to you know all those other ones he had before uh, this whole John Best mess. But um, he's really talented. I love him. Well, let's let's not go down that path. Right. So anyhow, and then we had. You've already talked in the second. Part, um, you. This is what you 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 can use this for all these different um, these a lot of um, ingredients like skirt steak and turkey breast. I mean, nothing. Turkey breast could be so boring, <laughs> but uh, of course we we, we do uh, chicken thighs all the time, so that's a recipe we could vary. Um, I, I think that this is going to be one of those books that has a, a really long shelf life because it's so interesting, it's so varied, it's so useful, and it's easy to read and understand and execute the stuff. So I think you've got a winner here, Mark Stevens. Oh, thank you very much. I I, I hope that people get the sense of travel that's involved with this cookbook, um, which, as you guys know, was involved with Cooking with Spices as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. These sort of travel cookbooks are something that I think, like you said, do have staying power because you're you're learning as well and and hopefully being inspired and and getting your nose into other worlds. And, And through food, it's a really easy way to do that, especially in times of pandemic and times of uncertainty when we can't always go exactly where we want to go. We can when we, you know, get into the kitchen um, and, and we can do it a lot with, with ingredients we already have. And um, so that was, I think the overarching 
arrow you know, through the heart of it's it. It's very refreshing to be able to pick this up and read it when we haven't been able to to get on the plane <laughs> or boat and go anywhere. <laughs> a bit vicarious living, I know. Just talking yeah. about my grandmother's rag here sort of made me nostalgic. I actually need to call her <laughs> for Mother's oh, Day. Yeah. Um, but, Where is she living but, again? She's in a town called Chiaveri, which is near um, Cinque Terre in, in, in northern Yeah, I told, Italy. I told Anne we've been there. Yeah, we've been there. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we're in Chico, that's where I grew up. Cinque Terre is the only part of Italy I didn't like. <laughs> I've been going since I was in, I was in school in um, no, Florence no. when I was in that's college. Right. There's, there's, another, there's another village close by that starts with an S, I think. And we, we, and we, we like that. We got there by accident because we missed our stop on the train. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, that's the probably. But your your mother was born near Genoa, right? Because I, I really enjoyed. Yeah, I enjoyed your discussion of pesto because um, I I do all those other ones too, and I probably insulting you by calling just calling it pesto when it should be identified as you say, such as arugula pesto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my, it's my one stickler thing. I, I, it's probably a bit pretentious, but when it's just I don't mind when people say pesto and refer to something. I, I just it rubs me um it doesn't rub even rub me the wrong way. People can do as they like, but it's sort of that one of those things that perks your ears when people say basil pesto. And yeah. it's like, no, pesto's made out of basil. I mean, I'll identify <laughs> other things as, as arugula pesto. But I I love those other pestles, actually, in, in, well, in some, spite of all that. So um, no, no insult at all. Mark, some, somebody told us that the Genovese ladies, when they make pesto, they actually, they actually physically take the, the stems out of the leaves. Oh is yeah, that, do you, do you is not? that true? Absolutely. Oh yeah, I I do as well. What stems, Robert? Are you talking about? The stems are the basil leaves. You, you're supposed to take them out. Correct. When, you, when you're it's, making it's your sauce, right, Mark? Process. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's that's just the way I learned how to make it. So I I didn't know that people were throwing their stems in, but perhaps I should have. No, no, added I, mean, that I don't think he means that. That's that's, a, that's the traditional way. I know I know somebody told us that. We never use stems in our pesto apples. You don't, but the Genovese ladies do. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big pesto somebody, maker. Somebody, somebody told us about that, and I was stuck in my mind. Uh, not, oh, I would not never too many put things stuck in my in. mind, but that one did. I, w- I would say that when it comes to actually making that, whatever is the thing that people are going to be encouraged to make the sauce, then, then that's what they should should do in terms of like I, I wouldn't want anybody to to uh, eschew away from making a sauce because they think it's going to be labor in, labor intensive. So if there you, you have a bunch of pe- if you have a bunch of basil and you're not worried about messing around with the stems, like throw it all in and and <laughs> go to work. Oh, yeah. I think so. I, 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 I would rather out. Yeah, I'd rather people be encouraged to cook, and even if they're going to make mistakes, like I'm a big champion of mistakes because that's how innovation happens. So uh, the, you know, perhaps with, in a certain sense, that something can be better if something's been done the same way over and over and never tried anything new. So, 
you know, there are there are rules, but I'm a big rule breaker just being a traveler. So um, yeah. I, I would encourage everybody to just to get cooking and, and not to worry about the stems. But, yeah, uh, we we've, we spent many an hour removing <laughs> removing. Yeah, I know. We do, too. But anyhow, um, if you want a stimulation uh, in pandemic or out of pandemic, this is a good book to put on your shelf and to take it off your shelf and cook from Mark C. Stevens. The World Sauces Cook. Thank you so much. Well, that finishes it for this week. Uh, we did some armchair traveling here. We did. Yeah, and um, tune in next week, same time. Same place. And same until place. then. Or any time, actually, since it's all on long. Yeah, you can drool all day long. <laughs> until then, bye-bye.